This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. As you may or may not have heard uh, with Ted Michaels on the news, uh, breaking news, the Hamilton judge who wore the Make America Great Again hat, the Donald Trump hat, uh, into court the morning after the Trump election win uh, has been suspended for uh, 30 days. Uh, breach, uh, breach of standards of judicial conduct, read the decision from the Ontario Judicial Court. To talk more about all of this, Jeffrey Reed, Hamilton attorney, he is with us now. Jeff, thanks for taking the time to join us. Are you surprised about this decision? Uh, well, I'm glad to uh, be able to help you, Scott. And I might say that you, you have a terrific agenda. It sounds really interesting. I just wish I didn't have to work all afternoon. I'd be happy to just uh, listen, maybe even call in. But uh, Hey, I wish I didn't have to work. You could come in and do it for me. Uh, no, no, I, I, I stick to my own knitting. Believe me, I couldn't do what you do. Hey, wait a second. Stick to your own knitting. Isn't that a sexist comment? Uh, gosh, uh, <laughs> I've already waded right into it, you see. Uh, there uh, you I go. I, would, I just thought I would pick up on the flavor of the whole subject. Um, am I surprised? Um, no. No. The short answer is no. And do you want to know why? Yes, please. <laughs> well, um, first of all, uh, was, something, you know, uh, was something done that was wrong that deserves uh, some sort of a, a sanction? And, and second, what's the sanction to be? So on the first question, uh, Justice Zabel freely acknowledged right from the very beginning, he said, okay, I've made a mistake, I shouldn't have done it, I am sorry. So, so it wasn't uh, uh, much of an issue about whether what occurred was something that should not have occurred. The real issue moved to, well, what do you do about it? And I think that the decisive principle is one of proportionality. Um, if, if we were looking at a slightly different context, but sort of analogous, if you were saying, well, in a case where somebody's charged, for example, and this is not, emphasized not a criminal offense, but if it were a criminal offense, you have the question, did you do it? And then if you did it, what's the judge going to do on sentence? And in sentencing, it's, a, it, it's well known that there's a range. It's not like two and two is four. If it can never be any other sentence but exactly this amount. It could be two and two is three. It could be five. But as long as it's in that, in that strike zone, judges on the appeals will say it's in the right strike zone, a little bit on the high side, a little bit on the low side, it's okay. So here I think there was a range. Um, I think that the uh, proportionality principle is the key part. So, so when you look at proportionality, you say, so what's, what's the problem here? And the problem was the obvious one. Judge has to be impartial and be seen to be impartial. And there's a lot of baggage that goes with uh, Mr. Trump's campaign, uh, whether you're on one side of it or not. It doesn't really matter. He does certainly represent a lot of, a ba- of that kind of baggage. And that's, that was what was unseemly about it, I think, plus the fact that it exhibits uh, you know, it displays a, a political preference. And judges just have to be seen to be impartial, and everybody has to know it, and it wasn't in this case. Mm-hmm. So you had a lot of complaints. Uh, I, I forgot how many. It was like 81 people in organizations and so forth. And so it obvi- and it caught, you know, uh, countrywide attention, internationally even. So they clearly had to try and deal with it. Uh, I think that range would have gone, and this is a private opinion, it, it has it, like it has no, uh, like, it's not like I'm privy to anything. Uh, anybody confided me, and I'm, I'm not part of that process at all, but, you know, I'm, I'm an observer. Uh, I think it could have gone from something like a reprimand, uh, noted on the record, perhaps saying to the judge, look, uh, we're going to uh, require you to take one or two courses that remind you about judicial uh, impartiality and the appearance of that to something a little bit more onerous, which is uh, the 30-day uh, suspension. And I think in the, all, in the overall scale of things, that, that's probably a pretty onerous, uh, pretty onerous uh, sanction. I know some people will say, uh, you know, if they're very uh, upset about this and so forth, and, uh, they, might, they might say, well, it's not even enough. But that's where you get to that question of proportionality. So uh, was I surprised? I thought it was in the range. Uh, maybe on the upper end of the range, but I thought it was in the range. Uh, how much did the court of public opinion play into this decision? I, uh, because it was, as you said, such a huge issue all over, went viral. Uh, how does that play into this? Uh, well, um, I, I, I think the answer is it, it is a factor to be taken into account in the sense that this is a whole, all about a process of having confidence in the administration of justice. Uh, that's, uh, that sounds so sanctimonious and a little bit high-flying, but, but basically, do we trust the justice system or not? So, so you have to take into account, well, what's the harm? And if you see a lot of people that are very upset and saying, I don't know if I can get a fair trial or not, and I should emphasize that I don't think there's any evidence whatsoever that somebody can't get a fair trial. Um, and, and in fact, I'll even make a personal comment that my observation over the years is that Justice Sable has been, for example, in cases of domestic assault, uh, very, very uh, uh, um, uh, considerate 
of uh, alleged victims, especially in uh, domestic assault cases, are very often uh, the, the alleged victim is a is a female. He, he's often shown the, the greatest of concern. So, so I don't think in practice it's been a problem. But anyway, the court of public opinion comes into it by the uh, the uh, the committee or the council that had to look at this and make a decision, saying, "Well, did the public even notice it? Well, it did. And did the public express concern about can we get a a, a fair trial? Is this uh, is what's going to you know how's it going to affect it? I think it takes it into account that way. I don't think that it's a slavish adherence to public opinion, like the public wants the public wants uh, you know a noose around his neck or a pound of flesh or whatever analogy you want. I don't, I don't think it goes anywhere near that far. I think they make an independent decision, but they're legitimately entitled to say, look, did the public even notice it? And and, and if they noticed it, what concern did they have? And is it a legitimate concern? Because a person can have a concern, but you know it's subjective. There's no real ground for it. But if you have a subjective concern. I mean, now you, the public at large, is an objectively reasonable concern, and uh, sub- so subjectively uh, they've got a concern, and then there seems to be a reasonable basis for them to say that. Then you've got to you've got to take that into account. So they did. What if, and I get lots of email on this, uh, what if he was wearing a different hat? Uh, um, good question. Uh, what if he was wearing uh, his favorite sports team, hockey team, baseball team, whatever, football okay. team? What if he was wearing a Hillary hat? Okay. Short, short answer is, uh, I mean, I think the textbook answer, and again, you're just hearing from me, is, it's uh, Jeff Reed's public uh, or uh, private opinion uh, being expressed private, uh, publicly. Um, I, I don't think it makes any difference technically. I think one could legitimately ask a question, though, how much of a, uh, a reaction, if at all, would it have triggered if he had uh, not worn a Trump hat? Because we know Trump is, uh, is highly divisive. Uh, uh, he's, a, he's a lightning rod for, uh, for controversy. And, and I, I think it's fair to say that, uh, by and large, most of the Canadian public seem to be not really enamored of him. So I suspect that being a Trump hat, it it provoked vocal reaction. Whereas a Hillary hat, people might have said it ain't the right thing to do, but you know, right. uh, let's walk on. They wouldn't have complained about it. Uh, maybe not. But once the complaint's there, I, I I don't think it makes a difference. You're expressing a uh, you're you're demonstrating a political preference and all the baggage that goes with that. And I and I I think you know you can't walk in with emblems. Uh, the, I mean, the closest we might ever get might be something that is most people would consider pretty mainstream might maybe you could wear a a a, a poppy uh, mm. for Mermaid's Day right, even that right. even that's not really done so so i think that is, is that not is, jeff jeff is that not done did you do judges often not <clears throat> excuse me don't wear poppies in the courtroom to be perfectly honest i'm trying to think whether i can remember a judge or not because if a judge had worn it i wouldn't have thought it uh, mm. remarkable so i can't actually bring it to yeah, mind good point. i don't really think they do as a general rule I think that the idea is to have it not, I'm going to use this word antiseptic, but, but to have it as neutral looking as you can so yeah. that everybody knows we've gone to court to have a legal case decided on legal principles and, and we're not going to be burdened by any other baggage or, or make anybody feel potentially uncomfortable. So, in other words, in your opinion, um, if this had been a hat that seemed less offensive in the public, like a sports team or what have you, this may have gone completely unnoticed and never have, have caused a stir at all. It, well, yeah, that's that's my own opinion. I mean, that's not a legal opinion. That's no. just my opinion as uh, as a member of the public. You, your opinion is probably even better because you, you moderate talk shows and you, you hear the public better than I do. But I, I, I doubt that it would have provoked much, if any, uh, reaction in that respect. I should just add a sidebar to this, that uh, one of the sad fallout things of this, and, and again, it's just a private opinion, but I've thought of it for months and months and months now. I've seen in the press, very often when they follow this story and they've said, you know, here's the latest development and there's a hearing coming up, blah, 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 they often just headline it saying, Trump hat judge. I mean, he doesn't even get a name now. Yeah. And, I, and, I, and I have to say that for a judge who's been on the bench for a long time, and as far as I know, has not had disciplinary issues like this, to, to sort of you know, it's almost like that's the that's the public legacy that's going to be left behind. I hope it isn't, but 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 it but it's sad, and I think there's a big penalty just just for that because it it it, it um, it's sad. Uh, how will the public view this decision? Do you think uh, you can answer it better than me? I I hope the public will take into account what I just said that it's a question of proportionality, and uh, and so. Um, he made uh, he rec- he acknowledged his wrong wrongfulness uh, or you know, what, the, what he did was wrong. He shouldn't have done yeah. it as a judge in that con- form at that place and time. He uh, apologized for it. Uh, his record shows that uh, that's not 
been um, it, it, it's not the sort of thing that he, he demonstrates in his judicial behavior in the rulings he makes in the in the in the in the way he treats people in a courtroom. So at the end of the day, I, I think proportionality, and I hope the public would say, yeah, because let's be honest, it's a black mark, and even to be suspended for 30 days in public, it's going to be all over the press, it is all yeah, over the press, yeah. it might even be international for all I know, uh, that's, 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 a, that's, a, that's a burden. How will this affect his career as a judge? Well, um, he's, uh, he's been on the bench a long time, uh, I think he's probably got a, another you know, five years or so to go. I'm and as you sure. mentioned, he has a solid reputation. Well, he does. I, I, I suspect that when the 30 days is done, he'll be back on the bench and carrying on just as uh, in the regular course of duties. I don't think that uh, he will be um, avoiding or made to avoid certain cases any more than he'll be uh, definitely taking them on. I think it'll be business as usual once he's back. Uh, was his sentence, this whole thing, used as an example, do you think, to other judges? That's potentially possible. You know, if I can harken back by analogy again to the things that I know most about as a criminal defense lawyer, uh, which are the, like the principles of sentencing, since principles of sentencing include the question of deterrence and denunciation, so that if somebody has committed an offense, and I'm emphasizing again, this isn't a criminal offense, but, but by analogy, if somebody has done something, um, you, 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 one of the things you say is when I'm sentencing this person, uh, what kind of uh, a sentence do I have to give to deter this person from doing it again, specific deterrence? But also, what kind of a sentence do I have to give to deter other people who would look at this and say, hey, nothing happened, I guess we can go out and do things. So I think that, I think that uh, that's an element that um, it, it underlies it as well. I, I, I think it'd just be one element amongst other things. So the public denunciation, the idea of um, I hate to use the expression, but it's an analogy. Uh, telling other judges, and just be mindful of this. Learn a lesson from this. Don't make this mistake. Hmm. Um, you, you said how this will go on business as usual after the 30 days uh, uh, suspension is served. Uh, could this come up in some future case to haunt him in some way? Yes. Uh, because uh, uh, if a, um, one of the lit- like a, a person who is accused uh, and, and their counsel look at it and um, feel that not you know that this is uh, compromise his uh, judicial um, impartiality. Um, yeah, it's possible they could raise the issue, but then then you get into an issue about whether there's a reasonable apprehension of bias, and actually the judge who sits is the first person, it may seem odd, to decide that issue. Is there a reasonable apprehension of bias? In other words, if somebody comes forward and says, you know, Judge, uh, you, 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 when you were a lawyer before you were a judge, you defended this person or you uh, did this or that position. Mm. Uh, so I'm, I feel, and, and it's not a question necessarily the person being biased. It's an allegation that what's in here is, even if you're not biased, it can look so bad to the public that you shouldn't sit. So it could be raised, then he'd have to make a decision, and then ultimately, in the long course of things, eventually, if, uh, uh, if a decision was to, uh, not in favor of the person who made that application for him to withdraw from the case, uh, they could raise it as a ground of appeal, but who knows? Hmm. How do you think we'll look at this 10 or 20 years from now? I, I hope we'll look back uh, on it with some measure of bemusement and, and instruction. So we'll look at it and remind ourselves that, you know, judges need to be impartial and be seen to be impartial and be scrupulously careful about that. But I, I hope in the long scale of things, we'll look at it and say that um, at the end of the day, there wasn't, in fact, any person actually harmed. The, the administration of justice was protected by a proper process, a proper hearing, a, a sanction that I, in my submission, is meaningful, if, if, albeit it's proportionate. And in the long course of things, uh, maybe uh, it'll just turn into a footnote. And I, I hope that it doesn't represent what I was talking about before, that, it, that his legacy, that the only thing that everybody will ever talk about is Trump had judge. I hope it's not that, because he deserves so much more than, than that, just for his years of service. Jeffrey Reed has been with us, Hamilton attorney. Jeff, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. You're welcome, Scott. Have a good one. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Lots of people talking about how the world is changing, how the economy is changing, uh, recent discussions in uh, the increase in minimum wage. 
uh, have been debated and uh, automation coming into play as uh, other companies are using this as an excuse to uh, ramp up op- automation. But at the end of the day, what happens is it's, it's harder for people to get good jobs. Temporary work has been a growing uh, problem in this country, or sorry, in this province, and growing at an alarming rate. Our uh, our Labour Minister for Ontario says that changes are coming that will hopefully encourage companies to hire on employees full-time instead of temporarily. To talk more about all of this, Alison Braley Ratai is with us, uh, Assistant Professor, Labour Studies, Brock University, and is with us now. Hello, Alison. Thank you for taking the time to join us today. My pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. This is, you know, an ongoing problem. It's something that we've been talking about for an awfully long time. What can we do to encourage companies to invest more in their employees? Well, that's, of course, uh, an enormous question, really. Um, I think that um, at this exact moment, of course, we have uh, Bill 148, which is uh, has been going through uh, committee uh, recommendations. Um, and, you know, it attempts uh, to make some kinds of changes uh, that will benefit workers, particularly with regard to precarious workers. Um, Some of the things it does, for instance, is, um, of course, it proposes to increase the minimum wage, uh, which has probably captured the imagination of the public more than any other part of Bill 148. Uh, But it also um, attempts to, it proposes, rather, um, to equalize payment and benefits between, for instance, permanent workers and temporary workers so that um, employers are not incentivized to use temporary workers on a, a kind of more permanent basis. Uh, and so there are some of those kinds of changes that Bill 148 uh, attempts to uh, attempts to to do or proposes to do. Um, from my viewpoint, um, they are kind of patchwork changes that um, might help a little bit in certain instances, but that um, we actually need to look at this problem um, from a much more expansive point of view um, and look at actually uh, increasing other kinds of market-based but not strictly capitalist market-based um, uh, systems in order to deal with this problem. Give us an example. Well, um, the first one that comes to mind um, is incentivizing co-ops, for instance, um, which uh, would presumably you know, work in the context of uh, a wider overriding uh, capitalist market system, uh, but doesn't have some of the imperatives of what I would call capitalist-based market systems because it is uh, you know, worker-owned and controlled. Um, and I think that uh, the expansion of that kind of stuff um, is, is very, very helpful. Uh, there's some proposals with that coming out of um, Charles um, NDP leadership camp, for instance. I'm also um, sympathetic to the idea of uh, the basic income guarantee, which is, um, you know, a very, very big idea in some ways, but uh, remarkably sensible in other kinds of ways. Um, you know, the basic income guarantee is, is liked and disliked both by people on the left of the political spectrum and on the right of the political spectrum. Um, and the devil is really in the details. So depending on how you implement something like that, um, you could be you know, really helping the situation or, or doing uh, um, more damage. Uh, but I, I guess what I'm saying is that you know, legislative changes are great, but I think we really have to think bigger and more long-term in terms of really reorganizing um, labor and how work is undertaken and how the distribution of that surplus uh, is undertaken, uh, not only in, in Ontario, but across the, uh, across the country and, and around the world, really. Has capitalism become a bad word? You know, that's funny because in, in my view, um, capitalism has become something that is now safe to actually kind of say. Um, so I guess maybe in that sense, yes, it's become a bad word. Um, but, you know, you know, prior to the last handful of years, even using the word capitalism would, you know, mark you as some kind of, you know, crazy radical who had all sorts of, you know, utopian um, but unrealistic ideas about how the world worked and how it could work. Um, but I think that there have been a number of things in the last, you know, five to ten years that have really uh, changed that, such that you actually can say capitalism. But when it's said, I, I think you're right, it is usually used in, in a way to sort of criticize um, some of the, the, both the moral and the empirical workings of that system. What about socialism? Uh, hmm. 
Uh, you might have to ask a millennial uh, that question. <laughs> uh, unfortunately, I'm, I'm a little bit, uh, you know, don't tell my students I'm old enough to be their mom. But, well, why, uh, why is it different if I ask a millennial? Because even that's a great point. Well, I mean, it seems to me, especially, you know, watching uh, not just the, the, the sort of the NDP leadership campaign, uh, which I've been following um, at this time, but, of course, watching the Bernie Sanders campaign and the Jeremy Corbyn campaign in, in, in the U.K., um, it seems to me that there's been kind of a, an electrifying of this idea for something, you know, bigger change than just tinkering at the margins. Um, and I think that, uh, by and large, millennials are a little bit more open to that because I don't think they bring the same kind of baggage with regard to what the word socialism means. I mean, that's kind of a, a very grandiose point. I make it very, very general. Some proof to the fact that they don't quite bring the same baggage. So you know, they can understand, is it, example, is it Is it that they yeah. don't bring the same baggage or they haven't reaped the reward? You Of the capitalist system? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a combination of both, but... I mean, I, I think it's perfectly acceptable to, by and large, say, you know, if the system is largely defended on the basis that it can provide for most people, you know, most of the time, then when they increasingly see it not do that, uh, and yet productivity is increasing, but those gains are going to a smaller and smaller number of people, I don't think it's sort of whining or complaining to say, you know, this isn't working. And it's not, it's not working for me because of my particular unique, you know, life choices, but it's not working by and large. Uh, and climate change, of course, becomes a key piece uh, of that as well. I don't think making climate change um, front and center. Do people want, uh, and, and, and you know what, and I guess I can aim this at, at the millennials because that's what we were talking about, um, but, 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 but even in a broader sense, do people... Are people looking more towards socialism, or do they want, or do they just want a bigger piece of capitalism? Um, again, that's a really that's a really great question and a very very broad question. I, I'm not sure that they're necessarily, you know, possible to disentangle one from the other. I, I think people do have a, a an innate sense of fairness. I, I think there's actually there's all sorts of research that indicates people are motivated by ideals of fairness and reciprocity. So I think there is a sense that it's not just about them, um, that, you know, as long as they get what they need, you know, to, to heck with everybody else. Um, now, whether or not people can actually put that in practice when they actually are doing well enough that, you know, they're relatively happy and things are relatively good, um, I think that's the, the bigger challenge. And by that, um, I didn't mean to allude that, you know, uh, if they get a bigger piece of capitalism, uh, capitalism it, it means that they don't give a damn about everybody else. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I'm assuming everybody would have the same opportunity. Well, I mean, I guess the, the, if, if capitalism was actually, and again, we're throwing these words around like they all mean the same thing to everybody, but um, with that caveat, if, if capitalism was delivering on the things it you know, proposes to deliver on mm-hmm. um, and, would, and did so in a way that didn't actually threaten our actual, you know, our very existence, which I don't think is really overstating it quite at this point. It might, in fact, be threatening our existence. Um, then, you know, I think that it would reduce the criticisms and it would reduce the viability. I think there would still be criticisms. I fundamentally think there's a problem with the inherent hierarchy that would be, you know, part of even a kinder, gentler capitalism. Uh, But I think it would certainly stunt some of the criticism. But the fact is it's not doing those things. It's not working that way. Um, And so, you know, if it doesn't work for people, by and large then that's a pretty big indictment. Did it work for Did it work for them? Uh, did it work for them in the 50s and 60s? Is it not working for them now? Well, I mean, we tend to look back to the 50s and 60s as this time when there were like what we call standard employment relationships. People worked 40 hours a week at the same job for 40 years, so forth and so on. Um, and that's partially true, but only partially. Um, it ignores, of course, the extent to which uh, women, for instance, were largely debarred from the workplace in any mm. meaningful way. It doesn't look at the relationship between white workers and workers of color, for instance, um, who have had a very, very different kind of experience than what is implied by the standard employment relationship of the 50s and 60s. So when you disentangle that, um, the 50s and 60s were probably not quite as healthy and or as idealistic as we, as ideal rather, as we think back on. Uh, certainly there were certain kinds of things that happened 
you know, more broadly than than they happen now, like the expectation that if you did find a job, you would likely be able to maintain it for, you know, a, a good chunk of your of your uh, living, uh, your working life. I remember in the 1980s reading something and, and actually doing a piece of a piece about it on the air, where mm-hmm. uh, you know by the turn of the century, um, uh, our workday would be much less, our work week mm-hmm. would be much less. Things that took all week to do, you could then do in two or three days. Which, of course, technology and we've we've all mm-hmm. seen uh, certainly come to uh, come to fruition. Uh, mm-hmm. But instead of having a shorter work week, what we've done is just shrunk the workforce. So now you're yeah. doing the same job that you did and your buddy did, uh, you know, in order to, to, to save more money for the company. What ha- what happened there? What happened to the vision of, hey, life's going to be great at the turn of the century to, well, yeah, all those things are going to be true, but that will just be making us work harder. Um, I is think it globalization? People, yeah. Well, I mean, I think first and foremost, you know, what happened there, the, the answer to that question I would suggest is that that analysis always misunderstood um, how capitalism actually works and the imperatives mm. of capitalism. So, you know, the advance in technology that capitalism has, has clearly, you know, enabled. I mean, there's no doubt that, you know, the Industrial Revolution and everything after that was, you know, increasingly rapidly, you know, technologically advancing and so forth and so on. Um, but the imperative to do that is to basically win the competition for the production and sale of goods on the market. So the idea you know, that, really, you know, that really underlies this at the, at the very core is not that we'll be able to free up all this time for people so that they could lounge around and then just collect a paycheck. It was that we would be able to harness that in order to, in fact, decrease our expenditures and increase our, our output per, per unit of, of labor and so forth and so on. So although I think we can rethink it, um, it requires us to understand that that, at the end of the day, is not what historically has motivated technological advancement. It has been the imperatives of capitalism, which are not about producing a bit of stuff and then distributing it equitably. Uh, is globalization equalizing all of this out? Uh, standards of living are going up in, in poorer countries, uh, richer countries not necessarily perhaps staying the same or going down. Well, I mean, I think... You know, very crudely, I think it's possible to say that, but I think when you look at it much more sort of systematically, it's not clear, in fact, that that's happening. Um, there's no doubt that there are certain pockets of the world that are, you know, you, you know, increase their livelihood, you know, plays the middle class in India, for instance, perhaps places in, in China. Um, but that that is certainly not true for most other places um, in the world. Um, and it's at... To some extent, you know, the, the decreasing quality of life here. I think the danger is in making it sound like, you know, workers, i.e. people, because most people are workers fundamentally, uh, you know, want to keep all this stuff here and you're too bad, so sad about other people. But I don't think it's a zero-sum game like that, or rather it doesn't have to be. Um, there are ways of engaging in uh, fair trade. Uh, all sorts of ways of engaging in trade in other ways than how we do it that would allow local economies to develop so that it doesn't have to be, you know, us pitting our work standards against, you know, some other some other country in the world as if, well, too bad, so sad for them. Um, and in fact, I don't think globalization has actually reaped the kind of rewards um, across the poorer parts of the world as is sometimes stated anyway. Uh, you said that uh, that in regard to Ontario trying to make it more attractive or uh, less attractive to use temporary workers, whichever way you want to position this, mm-hmm. uh, and in some way, uh, you know, uh, holding businesses accountable, what mm-hmm. can Ontario do that won't, of course, draw criticism that uh, this is driving jobs out, you know, whether it's an increase in minimum wage, whether it's uh, staggering electricity prices for companies, how do they do this and still make it attractive for companies to to open up shop here well the fact of the matter is i mean without making it sound like there's an inherent continual conflict although i tend to think that there is an inherent continual conflict uh, there are clearly places of cooperation i think you know people who work for a living and people who you know employ others for a living have moments where they they can cooperate. So, for instance, there are things that make Ontario attractive. Uh, the fact that we have a more educated workforce uh, than a lot of places, for instance. Uh, the fact that we have a nationalized healthcare system, which means employers don't have to pick up um, as much of the benefits and so forth to attract good talent as they might have to uh, in other parts of the world. 
Um, but at the end of the day, I think you will find that there is very few there are very few governments who would be able to implement, you know, really any kind of change, let alone a kind of you know really big or substantial change that will not, in fact, raise the ire um, of the business lobby by and large. And I think we see that with the minimum wage, which despite the fact that most peer-reviewed evidence suggests that its impact on employment is virtually nil, you know, it increases the spending of, of individuals who will be affected by it, but it doesn't actually radically increase or decrease employment levels, you know, across the board. And yet what we've heard from the business lobby is how many jobs are going to be shed uh, but there's no real evidence to, to substantiate that. So, I mean, I think that that is sort of a good example of how difficult it would be to make any kind of, you know, real change, if you will, um, without raising the ire of, of the business community. Um, uh, that's a struggle. As you mentioned, uh, and we've got a couple of minutes left here, as okay. you mentioned, um, uh, obviously the, min- the minimum wage is is certainly a hot-button issue with mm-hmm. Bill 148. Um and we've had many debates on this show about whether it should go up or, or what should happen with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, you know, at the end of the day, who, who doesn't want to make more money? I mean, gee whiz, I, I don't know anybody that would disagree with that. Uh, what I'm finding uh, that is missing from this debate is is that uh, how can we arrive at a minimum wage without defining what the definition of a minimum wage is. In other words, uh, back in the day, it was a starter job. It was a job, your first job, an apprentice type of job, and then you moved up the chain per se. Now people are saying that the minimum wage, uh, the role of the minimum wage job has changed because of the loss of manufacturing and such, that more people are relying on minimum wages to make a living. So is it about uh, being able to live on a minimum wage, or is it about to be? Is it about being able to provide people with living wage jobs they can move into? Um, I think that there's nothing at all realistic or unreasonable about seeing that. You know, we should have uh, an idea of what it means to. Uh, you know, make a decent living, right? We'd have to, you know, have an understanding. Def- so should you be able to make a decent living at a minimum wage job? And by that, I mean provide yeah. clothes, shelter, food for yourself. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, if, and if increasingly um, it is the case that people are taking and staying longer in minimum wage jobs, then that only increases the urgency of, in fact, coming to that conclusion. Uh, but again, you know, we hear stats like less than 9% of the working population uh, are in minimum wage jobs. And of those, 20, uh, two-thirds are under the age of 25. So does that not lend itself back to it's, it's not much has changed over the years. May, maybe people have more than one of them, but they're, they're, mm-hmm. they're starter jobs, not jobs that, geez, you know, uh, I never thought when I was pushing a broom around a Woolworth store that I'm going to have to make a living off of this. Right. Well, I mean, I think a couple of things. Increasingly, people who are in minimum wage jobs are, are in fact, getting older. So even if they till, still tend to be uh, on the young side, um, I think there's evidence. I, I'm, I'm straying slightly out of my comfort zone here, I'll admit. But it, it, from the research that I've done into this, I taught a course in this a couple of years ago, um, there is evidence that suggests people are getting older um, and having these kinds of jobs. But I think the other issue is not so much who's actually in minimum wage jobs, which is a smaller percentage of the people than who would benefit from an increase in the minimum wage. Everyone who makes the difference between uh, the present minimum and the proposed increase um, benefits from the increase. And that's a larger piece of the pie with, of course, you know, older ages, if you will, attached to, attached to that. Allison Braley Ratai has been with us, Assistant Professor, Labor Studies at Brock University. Temporary work's been growing in our province at an alarming rate. The Ontario Labor Minister of Ontario says changes are coming that will hopefully encourage companies to hire on employees full-time. Allison, thank you very much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. All right, thank you very much, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. Have you been uh, watching the big Apple unveil of the new phone? Uh, Apple unveiled its new iPhone versions today. The 10th anniversary edition entitled iPhone X is expected to be fancy and cost more than a grand. Wow. To talk more about all of this, Sid Bolton, curator, personal computer museum up in Brantford. He's with us now. Sid, how you doing today? Thanks for taking the time to join us. 
Oh, no problem at all. It's always a great day when Apple is announcing new products. I was about to ask you, so what what does this mean to you, Sid? How big a day is this for you? Well, not only is today uh, Apple Day, in a sense, because they've, uh, they've actually opened up for the first time the Steve Jobs Theater, uh, which is part of Apple Park, which is uh, the amazing new facility that Apple has built that was the vision of Steve Jobs, which unfortunately he never got to see before he passed away. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they're they're doing that there. But it's also today happening. Talk to about this. This is like a spaceship, a spaceship yeah, uh, sort of shaped thing. What is this like? It's it's just an amazing, uh, basically mixture of nature and technology, like no one has ever seen in the world. It's actually now, I believe, the world's largest. Um, solar-powered panel uh, building. Uh, So basically, they've completely got this thing. So they're off the grid in the sense of, uh, you know, they're providing their own uh, renewable power source. There's, as much as there's technology, there's also acres and acres of trees. I think there's 9,000 trees on the property. So they've really tried to make it uh, so that, you know, people understand we're not, you know, we're using technology. We want to be close with nature as well. They've made it so that employees can get around, uh, you know, on mobile uh, devices, like they're going around on, you know, scooters and things like that in between all the areas. Just an incredible building, a new place for them to to work and play, essentially. And this new theater, this state-of-the-art theater that they've just for the first time opened. So instead of renting a place to have their the press conference like they've done in the past. They're mm-hmm. now bringing journalists uh, into basically their facility, and uh, it's going to be uh, pretty cool. And it's, it was nice to watch. The conference is actually still going on as we're talking right now. They're just uh, finishing up talking about uh, the iPhone 8. That's the official name for it. No big surprise there. Um, and, of course, what uh, the stuff that they've announced, particularly on the 8, is, is essentially, again, not too much of a surprise. They're sticking pretty close to what we kind of expected them to do, which typical Apple, it's, it's better, bigger, faster, grander, uh, and to use your phrase earlier about pricing. Um, but uh, basically, it's, uh, it's a better uh, version of what they've been doing all along, uh, which is not too, too surprising. Uh, I think there's been more innovation in some of their other product line. I think with the iPhone 8 this year, they've stuck to keeping it pretty, uh, pretty safe. Uh, we, we've talked many times uh, about how many times you can hold these sort of things and still keep the, pe- the people's attention uh, the same way you did, you know, with the initial discoveries and the initial inventions and such. But it was funny, I was listening to the Bill Kelly show today and he had a guest on talking about this and comparing it to the auto industry and said that it's not much different than the way the auto industry used to be, where there'd be giant car shows all over the land, and the car companies would introduce their new models. Some years there'd be huge changes. Other years there'd be just changes to this, that, and the other, and a couple of a little decorative things. And really, that's what this industry has become, isn't it? Yeah, it has. And, and you can see, you know, for example, some years we would see uh, Apple have some major new products. For example, when they first introduced their Apple Watch, uh, that was a you know sort of a big announcement. Uh, this year, that particular product has been enhanced quite a bit because now the Watch Series Three actually can have cellular built into it. So now, you know, and you and I had talked, I think, one time about how you know you still have to have your watch and you still have to have your phone nearby yeah. if you want to make a call and all this kind of stuff. Now. You can actually have this watch device, which, by the way, is exactly the same as the Watch Series 2 in terms of size. So they've managed to put an antenna and all the other support materials required for uh, cellular calls onto your wrist. And so, you know, during the press conference, they actually made a call to one of the product managers who was literally out on the water uh, on a a little, um, you know, waterboard sort of paddling around. Mm -hmm taking a phone call uh which was pretty amazing so no worries about uh about her you know having this phone fall into the Mm. water this thing was on her wrist and she was able to make a call from the middle of the water so if that's you scott if you need to be able to make calls in the middle of water paddling around the uh the new watch series three has got you covered for sure if i'm making important calls and it has something to do with water it's probably because i'm sitting on the throne but uh (laughs) i I digress which uh, which uh, from what i understand is how most people drop their phones in water it goes into the toilet. 
Yeah, that's true. Yeah. That's anyway, also a little right. disturbing. Let's move on. Um, <laughs> how long, you know, and again, you made reference to us talking about the Apple Watch when it first came out, uh, as this being sort of a, just a remote control device for your actual phone. How yep. long before your phone is actually that device? I mean, you look at the size of an iPhone 6, 7, 8, whatever. How long before it shrinks to that size? Well, I mean, you you could technically now uh, just use this this watch if you wanted to make calls. Of course, it is a great companion device to the phone because, of course, things like managing your contacts and things like that are still going to be a heck of a lot easier to do on a phone and a bigger device where you can actually use, you know, your hands to type things. Although, you know, as technology like the voice recognition has gotten better with Siri and other products as well where, you know, we can just speak things and have it pick up pretty good. You know, I I don't think it'll be too much longer before, you know, for those people that don't want the phone um, or, you know, for example, like to wear T-shirts and don't have a pocket to carry it in or that kind of thing. uh, This is going to be, you know, something that you'll have an option to do is just to be able to ditch the phone completely and have this uh, device. And it turns out that, the pricing they're announcing right now, $400 US for the watch, although I think it's a lot of money for a watch, it's actually quite a bit cheaper than buying a phone. Uh, so, you know, hmm. that's actually getting to be a much better better price for sure. That could be and, a good marketing angle for them as these things head into the stratosphere. Yeah, and also they're really touting this year their, um, their heart rate monitor, something they've had the ability to do from the very beginning. So basically in terms of health, like this thing can actually detect uh, arrhythmias in your heart ahead of time. So you might actually be uh, in risk of having a stroke and this thing can actually detect that early, which is pretty amazing. Uh, And they're sharing all that information. If you allow them to, Uh, they're working with um, one of the universities in the States uh, in terms of sharing that, that data so that they can actually understand people's heartbeats and rhythms and things like that so that uh, when the onset of some heart disease comes on, you can actually kind of detect some of it ahead of time. So that's pretty exciting, and that's a pretty neat feature as well, and I think something that uh, definitely should be considered, especially if you're in that risk category, that you might want to consider having one of these devices for that reason. Uh, Myself, I'm still not totally sold on having a watch that's a a smart watch. I've, I've thought about used one. I've used actually a couple different products. And never really, it never got its hook into me. But as I said, probably early on, uh, is that give Apple, Apple's kind of like Microsoft in this way, in that their initial products may not be perfect. And certainly the original iPhone wasn't perfect, but let them revise it, let them work on it, let them take feedback from their customers, and they will get it right, and they will make it into a product that people want. And I think the Apple Watch is now getting to that point. And I think with the addition of the cellular and the fact that you don't have to have the phone with you all the time makes it a, a little bit more appealing, I think, to a wider audience. And, um, you know, it's just like Microsoft, you know, kept kept hitting the, going back to the well and trying again and trying again until they started to get their products better. And I think Apple is now doing the same thing. They're not necessarily having the perfect product when it launches, but they're getting better over time. I remember when Apple, uh, or sorry, when wearables first came out, Apple Watches and, uh, you know, the, the, these were supposed to be the next big thing. I mean, they certainly didn't take off the way that uh, the company anticipated they would. And it was funny because the first uh, couple of months that they were out, you know, there were the people, oh, look at my Apple Watch. Look at my Apple Watch. And then about a year or so later it was, yeah, look at your Apple Watch. What a sucker you were. Um, And and it's almost pulled a 180 there. Uh, Will wearables take off until they can actually replace your device? Well, I think that what we're going to see more... So in that space, is I think we're going to see a lot more uh, clothing that has technology embedded in it, and I think that's going to become sort of the new thing. I don't, I don't know that people are totally sold. Like I, I certainly agree with you that it hasn't taken off in terms of the watch um, as much. And although people are using products like Fitbit and other things like that, even that I've noticed lately has kind of waned a little bit. And it's not that people don't want to do the fitness thing. They're just finding other ways to do it, or they're using a device that they already have, which in this case has been uh, their smartphone. Yeah, or or your smartphone, which does the same thing. But you bring up a valid point, Sid, in the the sense that did Apple miss the mark here? Because the Fitbit seems to have captured people's imagination more than the Apple phone or the Apple watch has. 
It has, and I think they which really you can easily sort of, incorporate into the into the watch anyway. Into the watch, yeah, and I mean they're they're trying to sort of sell that with with the heart rate monitor stuff and saying, you know, hey, did you know that you're when you're doing fitness that you know we're monitoring your heart rate and we're going to tell you this, but it's not it's not quite the same, and they don't have the the same simplicity that I think Fitbit has. Um, and other how do you like explain it. it taking off and the watch not? Uh, a lot of it is the price. I mean, the, the entry point, point for that watch is very, very expensive. And Apple's always been a really premium product, whereas I think a lot of people that are trying to get fit and do these things, they just want something that's inexpensive that just works and leverages the power of you know the devices they might already have. So uh, that's one of the reasons why you know those products are, are less expensive, right? Because they require your tablet or your phone to sort of give you the results. So the results are inside the device, but then there's no screen on it and things like that that allows them to keep the price really really inexpensive and that makes it more more appealing but uh yeah so the pricing um has just been announced uh, by the way as we're talking so the iphone 8 will be so these are u.s prices keep in mind uh starting at 699 the plus at 799 um that's u.s so again at at 800 although the the u.s dollar isn't as strong as it once was with with our dollar uh, you are looking at for some of the higher end models of the plus definitely around a thousand dollars and what would, what is the price of a watch Sid the watch um, is now they've dropped the price of the first series down to 250 us mm-hmm. and the uh, the new series three is either 329 I believe without cellular and 399 if you go with the cellular option the problem with the cellular option right now in Canada it is supported in Canada I might point out is that they don't have enough room to get a sim a traditional sim card in there so they now have this new what's called an electronic sim and at the moment and at launch time I should say it'll be only supported on the bell network and then um, in a few months, it's going to be also supported by TELUS. There's been absolutely no mention of Rogers, which I find a little surprising. Um, and then, of course, you know, with Bell and Rogers, there's all their subsidiary networks and lower price networks that are all under them, um, like Fido and things like that. Um, so it's hard to say why Bell or Rogers is not in there. And I'm not sure what the deal is, but it could be because it uses this new technology. Maybe there just hasn't been... Um, a new integration to that yet, so we'll see. But 399 US for the cellular version, and that's, you know, whether you need that or not, I don't know. But to me, that new technology makes that more appealing. So, yeah, yeah. Um, and Apple has also just announced, by the way, that the iPhone 8 will have wireless charging. So that's uh, a new thing for Apple that uh, that they haven't had before. And also, they have definitely removed the headphone jack completely. So. Uh, oh, that was a big stink last time, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, so it's completely gone now. So they're really pushing people towards going with wireless uh, earbuds. The sale which, of Beats just went through the roof. Right, which, by the way, would also work very well with your new watch if it was cellular-enabled because you could actually uh, listen to over 40 million songs streamed to that device. Of course, I don't want to even talk about how much your data bill might be, yeah. but you could <laughs> really? listen to that stuff. Uh, without. So you could do things like you could be active doing sports stuff without having a phone in your pocket because if you just have this thing on your wrist and then wirelessly have your earbuds in, that would be much safer for performing sports and listening. So if doing exercise that way um, is, you know, anyway, that's... Uh, so with the watch, man, that truly is become the Dick Tracy watch then. As soon as you can talk into the watch, I mean, that's it. We've got it. We're there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> uh, I used earlier, uh, I used an analogy of the automotive industry 20, 30, 40 years ago um, in compared to uh, Apple releasing its product. Uh, so my next question is how many people are going to jump on board to get this phone? That being said, is it just like it was in the old days with the automobile? Everybody's really excited to go to the car show and see what the new cars look like, but that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to buy one. Right, and I think that's what's happened with Apple is that they've set a precedent now for basically releasing new products every year at this this time of year. And you're usually either in... Which is brilliant marketing when you think about it. I mean, again, they've mirrored exactly what the auto industry does in in, in a sense saying this is just as important an invention as that was back then. Yeah, and you're either of one of two camps, I find. Like, if you're already sold and you're drinking the the apple Kool-Aid, as Mm -hmm. it were, and you're, you're sold on that camp, it's either going to mean one of two things. It's going to be you're going to head out right away and you're going to be one of those people that pre-orders the product or 
you're going to be someone like myself who I, I do have an iPhone. I'm, I'm speaking to you right now on an iPhone. I, you know, do love their products, but I don't always grab the latest version. What I'll do a lot of times is I'll wait until the new one's announced. And then, of course, there's price reductions on the existing models, which may be just as, you know, enough for you anyways, because they're all good products. Because what was last year's number one Primo product will now be this year's discounted product as they tend to move out the old inventory. So for me, I'm probably going to, you know, move to like right now I'm using a six. So I'm going to move probably to a seven now because as soon as it becomes a bit, the uh, other the eight becomes available, uh, the the price of the sevens will drop for sure. So that's for me that's the time to to do that. So for some people, I think it's they wait. They're excited by the new products coming out because it means the older products are also going to be available at a discount. Where does this leave the competition? Where does this leave the Samsungs? Well, you know, Samsung has had a, a rocky couple of years uh, with their products, with particularly with uh, the problems they've had with phones catching fire and exploding and things like that. I think uh, they have made a good recovery from that with their latest products seeming to have gotten over that. Customers uh, seem to be pretty good at forgetting that kind of stuff pretty easily. Yeah. I think there's, I mean, the world runs on competition and innovation, and I think that... Uh, you know, Samsung is good for the space because they continue to push Android devices to be their best. And I think Apple is, you know, continuing to push their own product line to be the best. And I think we've, it's pretty good evidence that we've seen both products have stolen from each other in terms of ideas and, and features and things like that. Uh, it all comes down to whether or not, you know, for example, the new iPhone does feature some pretty fantastic optics in its cameras. Samsung is often had great optics in their cameras already, although maybe they don't tout it as much as they should or could. Um, but Apple's very good at doing that. And of course, they've always been in the artsy space. If you're just looking for a great phone that you know performs well and uh, has good value, you're probably going to stick to an Android. Uh, if you're looking for you know the coolest phone on the block that has some fancier stuff with the cameras and things like that and the software, I mean, there's no discounting the fact that Apple has done some pretty innovative work on the software side with their cameras as well as the hardware. And so if you're looking for, for something that kind of truly can replace uh, kind of a, a camera, a higher-end professional camera, you can actually look mm. at the Apple now for that feature, uh, especially with their new portrait mode and things like that, which actually you know lightens up the face and things like that. These are some pretty neat new things in the iPhone 8 that you can look into more closely if that's of interest to you. But I think that uh, there's definitely room for both of these major companies and, of course, all the smaller ones, too. I mean, there's a, a lot of um, a lot of these phones, they're ultimately made uh, offshore anyways, and a lot of uh, those companies are producing their own phones uh, that will come to market as well this year in more force. I think we're going to see a lot more of the Chinese phones and their mm. uh, price points are really, really good. So if you want a good phone and you don't want to spend too much money, there's lots of options. If you want to sort of get the top-end phones, Samsung and Apple are definitely the way to go. I'm waiting for the phone that will fly me around. When's that coming, Sid? Uh, that's 2029. Sid Bolton has been with us, curator of the Personal Computer Museum up in Bradford. Sid, as always, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. No problem, Scott. Take care. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.